0: Welcome to Fostering Solutions, a podcast that uplifts people and enterprises making positive impact in communities around the world. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Foster. My guest today on this special Maximizing with Michelle series is Stephanie Tyree, who is with the Community West Virginia Community Development Hub. Stephanie, how are you today? I'm great, Michelle. I'm happy to be here. Good, good. Tell the audience about yourself. Who is Stephanie Tyree?
1: Well, I'm a child of Charleston. I'm a native of West Virginia, and um, I'm from a family that has been in West Virginia for many generations. Mm -hmm. So I am the fifth Tyree generation based out of Charleston, and uh, come from a very big family. My dad has 12 brothers and sisters, many of whom are still here. So I'm um, the person who a lot of people say, which Tyree is your dad (laughs) when I see them in town? There's a lot of them, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And um, after growing up here, I left the state like uh, many young people do uh, after high school and went to college in Pittsburgh and then law school at NYU School of Law in New York City. And then I worked in New York for a couple years on environmental justice policy with a group called We Act for Environmental Justice. And I got to do um,
0: local, state, and
1: federal policy with them. So it's a great learning experience for coming back home. A good training
0: ground. Mm -hmm. So now you have a law degree from NYU, great school. And you chose to come back home and work in the nonprofit sector. Why did you choose the nonprofit sector, and why aren't you off being a hotshot lawyer in New York? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, so being a hotshot lawyer was the career trajectory of most of the people at my law school. But I went to NYU because they have a really strong social justice law program Mm -hmm. and a public interest law program. So I always knew before I even got to law school, that I wanted to do something in public interest law. And what I got really interested in while I was there was understanding that the legal system is basically set up to require a translator for most people to understand Mm. what's happening to them, what's happening around them, and what's happening to our country from a legal perspective. And I felt like because of the privilege that I had of being able to go to law school and learn that language of law. I wanted Mm -hmm. to bring that back to my home and make that translation for normal people to give them the skills and the power to be able to be in control of what was happening to them. I um, also just, I'm not very good at pretending to like things that I don't like. And so <laughs> I was terrible at interviewing for jobs that <laughs> were not things that I cared about and that I felt like I could get some purpose out of the work. So very quickly, I started looking at the nonprofit sector. Most of the jobs that were in those areas of interest for me were with nonprofits. Before I came to West Virginia, it was mostly with larger nonprofits, though. Okay, mm-hmm. So it was really nonprofits that were operating at um, a national or at least regional level, which Mm -hmm. was a lot of what law students go into. So I didn't have a lot of experience with smaller nonprofits or more local nonprofits, which Mm -hmm. I've gained since I've been Mm -hmm. home. Mm -hmm. And then um, after a couple of years of working in New York, living in Brooklyn, working in Harlem, I just got really homesick. And Mm -hmm. I had left West Virginia without really any expectation that I would come back home and I spent most of my time in college and law school living in all different kinds of places trying to find what was going to be my home where mm-hmm. was the place that mm-hmm. I felt most at home and I lived in Oregon and Ireland and Colorado and um, all uh, all over the place really and nowhere pla- nowhere felt like home everything was just like a little bit wrong, a little bit There's off. Something
0: about it, yeah. It was yeah. Right. yeah.
1: And then I just had this realization where I was like, oh, I already have a home. <laughs> 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 My home is West Virginia. And when I was working in environmental justice policy, I started really paying attention to what was happening in Appalachia and in the region around um, social justice issues and environmental issues. And I felt like I could be a positive contributor to my home, and so I got the chance to come home, and I've been here ever How since. How many years has it
0: been since you've been back? Uh,
1: almost 15. Oh my gosh, Yes, it's just
0: flown by. Yeah,
1: so I was gone for about 10 years, and I've been back for I think about 12 or 13 years now.
0: Mm-hmm. So this this series, it's great to hear, hear, hear of your journey, because I know I've Served with you um, at, on your board at The Hub, and it mm-hmm. was always a, a growing. Like you said, it was a small nonprofit that has mushroomed and really um, grown tremendously um, under your leadership. So, you know, congrats on, you. on that. Because I remember when we were hiring you. Yes. <laughs>
1: Seems like so long ago. Yes, I remember sitting in your office
0: <laughs> <laughs> talking about <laughs> that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this series that I'm doing is about maximizing impact. What does that term mean to you? Maximizing impact. What does it mean to you?
1: So I think about maximizing impact really on three different levels. Maximizing impact to me is about how do you make the most out of what someone can do individually in their own skills, their own leadership? How do you think about maximizing the the impact, the purpose, and um, the ripple effects that each person has the potential for Mm -hmm. as an individual leader. And I think a lot about leadership development. We do a lot of work around leadership development at the hub. On a second level, I think about maximizing impact from a community level. And the way that we've seen communities maximize impact has really been when they make the affirmative choice to work together as Mm -hmm. a team, And they reject the uh, temptation to go off and be a lone wolf or try Mm -hmm. to be the savior of their own community by themselves. And they realize that they can mushroom their impact Mm -hmm. when they come together and recognize the value of the diverse perspectives and skills that different people bring to a team. And then the third level of maximizing impact that I think a lot about is through partnerships. And Mm -hmm. when organizations that have different perspectives, different skills, and different ideas come together and build that Venn diagram of their overlapping approaches Mm -hmm. and really build a trust-based relationship, and once you have deep trust between organizations and partnerships, the scale of the impact you can have is really, you know, um, infinite. It's I think. Limified, yeah.
0: so, it, so it seems like you know your views are kind of have guided the hub. Just listening to how you talk about partnerships and working together, is that? Could you share an example of how you've used those kinds of strategies in in some of the work that you've done? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so uh, it is core to the way Mm -hmm. that the hub works is at the individual, the community, and the partnership level. And I think I've been at the hub for 10 years now, and I think that um, I've brought some ideas to the hub and I've learned so much at the hub. So Mm -hmm. it's hard to know where the start and the end of it is at this point. But some examples that I've seen where that partnership maximizing impact has been really transformational, has been in our partnership with Coalfield Development, actually. Mm -hmm. I have two Mm -hmm. examples from that. And one was serendipitous, and one was an example of a very intentional approach to maximizing impact. But the first transformational work that we did together that was serendipitous was uh, we had a meeting. This was many years ago, and the Hub and Coalfield have worked together for years, mostly around abandoned and dilapidated property policy issues. Mm -hmm, So we were really mm -hmm. focused on a very specific thing. But we knew that we needed to kind of get a better understanding of what each organization did, and we were both doing lots of different things. So we had just a casual meeting to sort of update each other um, about here's the programs we're doing and here's the places we're working and those kinds of things. And we mentioned in that meeting, the Hub mentioned that we were – coaching a very small community in southern West Virginia named Matewan West Virginia Mm -hmm. in Mingo County which is right on the border of Kentucky and at the time Matewan had been in a hub community coaching program for a couple of years and they had done a number of small projects they really hadn't wrapped their hands around a big transformational project which for most of the communities where the hub works those projects end up being like main street redevelopment projects mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's a lot of small towns that have main streets are trying to revitalize and most of the community members in those towns don't have the technical knowledge right. about how to do those projects coalfield was doing a lot of building redevelopment projects but they weren't working in Matewan, mm-hmm. but they were interested in knowing what's going on there so we just mentioned in this meeting that we had been working in mate and they were really trying to Uh, Figure out what to do with a couple of old historic buildings Mm -hmm. that had been part of the historic Matewan massacre. Mm -hmm. And they had historic value, but nobody was using them and they were dilapidated and on the verge of falling down. And Coalfield said, We want to help them. And -hmm. they went down there and they looked at the buildings and we connected them with some community leaders in Matewan. And they started a massive project, and they've redeveloped the buildings and um, have put them into productive reuse, saving some of the history of that town. Good. Moving forward, some of their own organizational priorities, and really showing, you know, how when partners come together, learn from each other, and just share information without a real agenda necessarily mm-hmm. of I'm trying mm-hmm. to get you to do this for me, some things can bubble up that bring real value.
0: Great,
1: great. So one other example, and I'll get more into this later, I think. But the other example is um, the Act Now Coalition, which is a massive uh, 21 county project that uh, Coalfield Development is leading, and the Hub is a core partner on them with to drive um, economic development and um, climate change uh, related development in Southern West Virginia. And so uh, this was really sparked out of a federal funding opportunity that the EDA launched a couple of years ago to put a billion dollars into uh, really organization or university-led development projects around the country. Mm-hmm. So uh, because the hub and Coalfield had been working together for so many years, We had built, especially at the organizational leadership level, a very deep, trusting partnership between the organizations. And so the CEO of Coalfield came to me and he said, I want to go for this project. I want the hub to be part of it. And um, I want you to just do what you do. And it was a project where it could easily have been positioned as it's my pro, it's Colefield's project. It's my project. You do what I say you're going to do if you want to be part of this mm-hmm, pie. Mm-hmm. Um, or I'm just putting partners together so that we can win it, right? Kind of thing,
0: right? right. But you've been you were working together for years already.
1: Yeah, there was yeah. that trust, there was that knowledge of like we knew what we were going to, we each did. And um, I, kn- I knew that there was humble leadership at the table. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. that's where I've seen some real um, unexpected opportunities and impacts rise up is when that humble leadership shows up and people are seeking just to make something happen that brings value outside of what might bring themselves wealth or personal
0: value. That's a great example, great example. So as you reflect on and congratulate, that's a major win for West Virginia. That was, that was a major, major win for West Virginia yeah
1: is it's exciting mm-hmm. um and it's it's daunting too um <laughs> as we get into the work, but um it's really transformed a lot of a lot of the work, and I think it will bring a lot of value to southern West Virginia
0: mm-hmm. as you reflect on current and you know past programs, which do you think? Where do you think you've seen the most impact and how do you know? Mm
1: -hmm. So um, one of the core values of the hub is we learn by doing and we aren't afraid to fail in the work because from failure comes deep learning. And if you are focused on analysis and adaptation, so Mm -hmm. we really do a process where We try things out, we learn from them, we adapt, and then we improve. It's a sort of iterative cycle. And that's been present since the Hub started in 2009 in our community coaching programs. Mm -hmm. And the first community coaching program that we started was called HubCAP, which is the Communities of Achievement Program. It's our oldest coaching program. It's one we've probably learned the most in. Mm -hmm. And when I say a community coaching program, what I mean is basically – we bring a community economic development curriculum to a team of community members that are focused on improving their communities and are committed to working together for a certain period of time mm-hmm. through a program. Mm-hmm. And all of our programs are focused on leadership development, team development strategies, and project development. So in Hubcap, they always have a specific project that they're working on and they're focused on. And so uh, that program has worked with um, over 25 communities over the last 10 years or 12 years. And um, it's really been amazing to watch the continuous growth that some mm. communities have been able Even to Even when achieve. they're
0: no longer you know, in the Hubcap program. Even after
1: you. Hubcap. That's awesome. So one of our first communities in the Hubcap program was Buchanan. Mm-hmm. And when Buchanan came into the Hubcap program, one of the first things that they did was they started a weekly community meeting, which was really around project ideation, which is thinking about what projects they wanted to do, planning, updates, moving forward, lots of different projects. Mm-hmm. And they really worked through Hubcap to figure out, like, how do we structure these? How do we make them really an open-door process? They've kept those weekly community meetings going on. They happen every Thursday at noon in downtown Buchanan at a local restaurant, which gives a room to them to meet every week. Mm -hmm. Everybody pays for their own food, right? So it's not a cost. It's not
0: like they're they're just coming for lunch. That's Mm -hmm. good. Yeah. Mm
1: -hmm. And they've kept that up for 12 continuous years. Wow. Every week, they have between 15 to 50 people show Mm -hmm. up a week. And it's really uh, created this momentum in the community of continuous activity continuous actions Mm -hmm. and so out of those meetings they started a thing called a festival fridays which is a weekly um community event that they do in their downtown where people sell things and they have sort of a festival um air to the town it brings Mm -hmm. people to their downtown they have revitalized the city park and done a a development there and they've redeveloped multiple downtown buildings. So there's just lots of things from little that's things wonderful. to big things. So another community that has uh gone through hubcap, I'll use two more examples. So another kind of older community that's gone through hubcap is Princeton, which is in Mercer County in southern West Virginia. And um they started Hubcap planning to focus on revitalizing a historic theater in their downtown which was located in a part of their downtown that had, got, had gotten very dilapidated. It had really high crime rates, and people were afraid to go to that part of their town mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. there was so much you know, um, criminal activity happening there. They really felt like in order to bring new vibrancy to their whole community, they had to focus on revitalizing this district of their downtown, of their business district. And the theater was right in the middle of it. They felt like the theater, once they revitalized it and opened its doors, it would be this catalyst for business development. But they also started some small business development efforts while Mm. the theater was going on. Well, it's been 10 years. Mm -hmm. The theater is not open. It has been an absolute money pit project. It has run into so many challenges. It is on the verge of getting done this year. Um, But while they were working on the theater they didn't just focus on that they didn't put all their eggs in that basket they kept working on other things they started multiple major festivals and events that brought people into that area brought Mm -hmm. thousands of people to their downtown for like new year's eve and halloween and a few other events and they focused on getting their buildings in that area ready for businesses Mm -hmm. and cultivating businesses to go into those buildings. Mm -hmm. So they've brought in 30 new businesses.
0: Oh, wow. While they're waiting to do the theater, while they're still working on the theater. Yeah.
1: They've gone from about a 15% occupancy rate in Mm -hmm. that district to 100%. And they have a list of businesses that want to get into buildings there and are waiting. And they can show a reduction in their crime rate in their city as a result of it.
0: Talk about impact. Yeah. So and that measurable impact. That's great.
1: And it was all led by a group that is focused on arts development. Okay. So this is the other thing that's been really interesting about this work is the unexpected leadership.
0: Unexpected, unusual, not not the traditional path Mm -hmm. that you would.
1: Yeah. When you make space for people to be there, be themselves, and to step into leadership in their true authentic form, mm-hmm. you can find unexpected leaders all over the place in the community.
0: Absolutely. Those are great examples. What do you know now that you wish you knew when you first started in your position <laughs> at The Hub? <laughs> what do you, what do so, you know now? It's like, I
1: what was you... reflecting, this was a few months ago, I was reflecting on my interview for Mm -hmm. my position as the executive director. So before I became the director, Michelle knows this (laughs) because she was there when this happened, but before I became the director, I uh, was the policy coordinator for Mm -hmm. the hub. I was running our community-based policy program. Then I got promoted to deputy director and our founder and executive director was retiring. And I decided to throw my hat in the ring in um, an open application process for Mm -hmm. his position. And... I um, I don't do anything sort of haphazardly, right? So <laughs> I forgot that I did this until recently, but I hired someone to help. It was almost like a coach. And she just helped me organize my thoughts for preparing for that interview. And I remember very clearly like us working together and sort of mapping out my understanding of the hub and my analysis or proposals of where the organization could grow and move forward. Mm -hmm. So I had this whole kind of like strategic plan that I made for the (laughs) interview. (laughs) (laughs) And so I think that there's a lot, there's a lot that I knew coming into the position because I'd already been at the organization. Mm -hmm. I had sort of time to think about what was working and where could we grow and um, where were there opportunities. The things that I don't think I was at all prepared for were really around staff management and managing people. Yeah, yeah, it Mm -hmm. was a really tough transition to go from a peer to a supervisor and um, final decision maker on everything. Mm -hmm. And it was a process to go through that that I think I was not at all aware was gonna have to happen. And then as the organization has brought in new people and as we've grown, it's that's probably where my own learning has been pushed the most, is mm-hmm. learning how to support people when they're your employees in their own leadership development and growth while holding them accountable to mm-hmm. the requirements of their position and um, how to bring... The level of support that I want to bring to people in their own leadership development and my management of them to an organization as it grows. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm learning and right have now.
0: you growing. Like how big is, how many staff do you have now?
1: So we're at 15 staff and three vistas. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have some internal organizational vistas. And then we're planning to hire one more. Okay. So we're hoping to be at 16 by the end of this year. We were at eight in fall at last year. Wow. Um, so we doubled Double our size. size. yeah, And that's been a big learning uh, curve for me because I was doing a lot of one-on-one, really deep, intensive staff management. Mm-hmm. And I think it created a real culture and a um, it brought some value to the organization. It is not possible once you grow. Once you grow, yeah. To that next level. So I think that's where I could have... Um, used some guiding hands that I didn't even know to ask for when I first mm-hmm. started mm-hmm. was really around that people. Managing management. people, it's, it's,
0: mm-hmm. it's a cha- it can be challenging. It can be challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, like what aspects of your work do you feel most proud of when you reflect on all that The Hub does? Mm-hmm. I guess what is your, you know, what is, what aspect of that work are you most? do you get the most joy from?
1: Well, so I'll start big and then I'm mm-hmm. going to do, give a second example that's super technical. Um, but I think on a big scale, what I'm most proud of is the culture that we've created in mm-hmm. the organization. We're really a people first organization. We try to Um, let people be their whole selves and be appreciated as their whole selves in the organization, Mm -hmm. especially through COVID. We created a lot of new kind of flexible work policies. And we're an organization that – I'm a mother of young kids, and so we're an organization that's led by someone who – I need a lot of flexibility Mm -hmm. in my work. Mm -hmm. And so I understand – When people need to step away, they've got personal emergencies, family emergencies. So we try to create that culture of um, caring and safety while also being an organization with extremely high expectations Mm -hmm. of performance. And so it's a balancing act. Right. right. Um, But I, I think that we do it pretty well in part because we... Live this value of humble leadership in the organization, and so we say to everyone that gets hired at the hub, you're hired because of your leadership potential, and this is a place where your leadership should be able to blossom and mm-hmm. grow. Mm-hmm. So I think that's um, one of the things that I feel most proud about is that we've been sort of developing this culture that um, maybe is uh, it's been evolving over time, and it it's not necessarily fits in a, a normal um, box where everyone shows up at the same time and um, operates in the same way. But I think it gets the highest and best value out of each person who's there. Mm-hmm. The second thing that I think I'm most proud of is um, the work that we've done around abandoned and dilapidated mm-hmm. building policy. So this isn't one of the first things. Not the sexiest pro- you know, that's kind that's of project, the bad buildings. I
0: mean, <laughs> yeah. how they, have they changed that acronym or are they still using it? Oh, that? yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> That's, that's Brownfield Assistance Center. So I think that uh, it's like, it's not, yeah, the sexiest thing to talk about. But when I first started at the hub, um, I had come from policy work that was highly contentious. I was working on Mm. environmental policy in southern West Virginia during the the first um, term of the Obama administration. And it was just very difficult work where people Mm -hmm. felt like, you know, it was literally... You're anti-coal and... Families and life, against families. Yes. Yeah. And um, it, it just felt kind of misaligned with my own values because it, I am the kind of person where I want to find um, agreement and mm-hmm. I want to find things that we uh, agree on and then start from there. And that work was always starting from like a f- first place of disagreement and <laughs> trying to move mm-hmm. from there. Mm-hmm. And so when I came into the hub you know, the first thing that we did with our policy work was we looked at what are what's an issue that's bubbling up across every community. Mm-hmm. And everybody agrees we need to work on it. And it was abandoned buildings and dilapidated buildings. Mm-hmm. And it was an issue where people were working on them individually, but there was a larger systemic problem mm-hmm. that we felt like only policy could address. So we put together this coalition, and <laughs> I remember the first... Um, time we went to the legislature we spoke to a committee and um ray moeller who's at the Brownfields assistance center now mm-hmm. he was a vista at the time from richwood and he had these little pa- like paper documents and these printout pictures this was really it feels like a million years I ago know but it, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah there was no digital anything it was all just <laughs> written out but it was all it was the hundreds of abandoned and dilapidated buildings in that one small town. And it really caught the legislature's attention because they were like, oh, yes, this is an issue. Well, anyway, fast forward about seven years and we got the we got the legislature through working with the current auditor to do a complete rewrite of the state's property tax oh, sale wow. code to restructure it based on research that we'd done with a national firm that said these are all the problems with West Virginia's property uh, property tax process mm-hmm. and the way that buildings get lost in that process, and they can't be redeveloped even if you want to, mm-hmm. and the way that it harms low-income homeowners who struggle to pay their taxes. And so We ended up doing this complete rewrite of the tax sale code. We got a new corporation started that can take on those properties. We got 11 land banks started around the state. So there's all this infrastructure now. And Mm -hmm. it's stuff that you don't ever see if you're not thinking about it. Mm -hmm. But it's all working to put dilapidated or abandoned properties back into productive reuse. And it wouldn't be there at all if this coalition Hadn't started it's, amazing.
0: On it. it's a major accomplishment. Yeah. Major accomplishment. You've mentioned that the organization has been growing. You doubled in size. What, what are those areas of growth well, that you're experiencing?
1: So we have had enormous opportunity because of the increased federal resources mm-hmm. that have come into the Appalachian region. A lot of what the hub's done over the last five or six years is really build a deep understanding of federal funding opportunities for rural community development. We've built strong relationships with federal funders, and we've leveraged some of that work into funding for ourselves. We've also been focused through trainings, workshops, and one-on-one coaching in helping grow the capacity of the state Mm -hmm. to draw down those federal funds and thinking with partners like you about how do we address some of the barriers to accessing those funds, including, you know, the resources that we have on the ground, grant writing capacity barriers, those kinds of things. So we've been able to grow our work and we found new resources for some of our programs through federal funding Mm -hmm. partnerships. And then um, we have also been able to grow our work through some national partnerships. So as we've elevated our work and started to you know um really demonstrate the the value of the approach the approach of working with small towns and helping them do community-led redevelopment initiatives some federal partners i mean some national partners have started to say we like what you're doing we want to partner with you it's awesome so that's what we've been able to leverage but there's still so much work to do Mm -hmm. and one of the things that I've been really focused on for the last year and a half about is the community investment system, which is, which means how does money flow to small towns? Mm-hmm. And particularly, what are the barriers that keep money from being able to flow to small, extremely economically distressed towns in West Virginia? Mm-hmm. And um, there's a bunch of problems, a bunch of parts of that System of resource flow, a particularly private resource flow that are broken. But one mm-hmm. of the things that's really missing in West Virginia that other places have in abundance is a network of mission driven nonprofit developers mm-hmm. or even for profit developers, but what are in most places called CDCs or community right, development right. corporations. So um, we've been experimenting with developing and supporting emerging CDCs in West Virginia and thinking about how do we use the few CDCs in the state as mentors, guides, and co-developers for new CDCs? What are regional and national resources that we can bring in to start to increase the investment capacity of the state? And what's the knowledge base and the leadership development that's needed for these um, either local or county or regional mission-based developers. Because one of the things that I've really seen over my time at the Hub is that you can lead a community to build a vision, to get real agreement about what they want to do in their community, to get very focused on a set of projects that they Mm -hmm. know are catalytic, but they're not developers. Right, right. And most of the time they don't have money. <laughs> mm-hmm. Most communities don't have a wealthy philanthropist who wants to put all of their money into their hometown, right? And
0: it's, so. that, it's like it's a capacity building before you get to real development, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, so yeah.
0: It's not a lot of people want to fund a project, but if they're not ready to take the community's not ready to take on the project. They've got to get there. Yes.
1: So they might ha- know that they care about this building. A lot of people mm-hmm. have a very deep connection to individual buildings, but like they want to save that building. Even if they found someone who would redevelop that building and they found someone who would pay for that redevelopment, they don't have anything to go in that building. Right. The project doesn't work. So it's mm-hmm. sort of this puzzle. Putting all the
0: pieces together.
1: That yeah. has to be put together. And there has to be a quarterback that keeps that all going mm-hmm. in an in mm-hmm. individual community. So that's really the the CDC's role and ideally they're someone they're a group that is made up of people from that community mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that have that ownership of where their community is going and what happens so it really ends up building a lot of power and um, long-term like community ownership of a place mm-hmm. and We're missing it in a lot of West Virginia. So that's the growth that I've been thinking a lot about. And I think that there's um, a lot of energy for that right now in the state. And going back to the very first thing we were talking about, about the partnerships, Mm -hmm. one of the things that I always say that is like a strength of West Virginia is that we are very small. And so everybody knows everybody. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Or, you know, if I don't know you, like I know someone who uh, knows you, right? Yeah, I know of you, right? So, We have those deep partnerships in place where we are now really, I think, at the level where we can um, take some big risks Mm -hmm. and try out some things that feel more difficult or scary because there's been this building up of knowledge of like, this is what's needed. If we cannot fill this gap, we cannot move forward. And it's been really exciting to see people sort of put aside their own agendas for themselves or for their organizations and just mm-hmm. think about what's best for the state and how do we do that together. And, um, and if it has to be something new, then that's great, and I'm willing right. to do that.
0: Right, right, right. So as we wind down, you know, you're tackling a lot of tough issues in West Virginia, um, uh, West Virginia's poorest communities um, in, around, the, around the state. What gives you? If you look to the future, what gives you hope? Mm. Well, you know, it's it's some some, and I I think throughout this series and in in my book, I've been telling people it's not easy. Running a nonprofit, working in a nonprofit, it's not easy. So how do you, you know, how do you remain hopeful through it all?
1: I feel very hopeful. I feel really. Fortunate to get to do the work that I do, and um, I love the people that I get to work with. I think a lot of what gives me energy is being able to visibly see what's happened, mm-hmm. whether it's in an individual community and the progress that they've made, or if it's in an individual person and their mm-hmm. leadership growth, and being able to be, you know, in deep relationship with those places and those people. So I really see the impact of the work that I do mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in part because I've been here long enough to be able to see that, but that gives that drives a lot of my hopefulness. I think the other thing that gives me hope is just almost the shift that I feel like we're seeing over the last like three to four years in the interest people have in doing purpose-driven work. Mm-hmm. I do feel like there has been, you know, a real shift in perspective. We have had a lot more people coming to me and to the hub and saying, I want to do work that I right. feel like I get value out of my mm-hmm.
0: work. I, whether, and younger people, I see more young younger oh yeah. people doing that, right, it's not just, I thought it was just kind of, you know, me and my mm-hmm. own narrow world but I, I, I'm i glad to hear that because I've, I've observed so. that too in West Virginia yeah, yeah. and it's yeah.
1: not just people saying like I want a job with you a lot of it is people coming to us and talking mm-hmm. about how they want to open businesses in their towns you know or they want to give back to their community in a certain way and so I just think that we're in this moment where there's this real bubbling up of purpose driven leadership mm-hmm. and of people demanding to have a life where they feel purpose right. from their life, right. and that's exciting and energizing. And the last thing that I that gives me real hope is, I think that we're fortunate to be in West Virginia because I think West Virginia has a key to the future, and that key is the asset of our small towns. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. People want to live in places where they're part of a community, mm-hmm. where they know the people in their town when they walk down the street. Not everybody wants that, but a lot of people do. And a lot of people are searching and for that. And I think that. COVID had
0: something to do with that too.
1: Exactly, You're yes. Right. No and one th-
0: wants the congestion of a big city and everything that goes with that anymore. I think less people do, I think. Yeah, and, and what
1: they're looking for are in those towns are things that we already have in our towns. So like a small main street, Housing that is affordable mm-hmm. or reasonable, and sort of like a um, family or community-oriented sense of place. Mm-hmm. And the things that they're looking for that we don't have are things that we can easily get. It's right. a lot of small businesses mm-hmm. and some assets. Childcare,
0: care is, is important. huge, isn't it? Yeah, it's such a big barrier.
1: Rural healthcare. You know, there's some things that we really have to focus on building up. But I do think that once we get that kind of um, those key pla- parts in place mm. in towns. Broadband. <laughs> <Fraud band>. Broadband. Broadband, broadband, telephone access those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, once we get those pieces in place, there's going to be a flow of people mm-hmm. into our small towns. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there's – I feel a lot of hopefulness about that and excitement about it, and I. it's a fun time to be doing this you And you're,
0: you're, you live in Fayetteville, and uh, Fayetteville is – booming because of the new national park and all that. And yeah. that has some challenges with that from what we you know, the foundation, we funded a planning project Yep, because there's no plan and they're being, yeah. yeah, I don't want to say invaded, but a lot of people are moving to the area because of the park right? or visiting the area. Yeah. I live,
1: um, I live outside of Fayetteville, just like a couple miles outside of town mm-hmm. on a road, which has the most popular trail on it. Oh, wow. And so I see every day, I'll see it when I go home today, mm-hmm. um, the level of traffic, especially now that we're getting into the summer season. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is sort of what I'm, the other side of the coin of that, the asset of the small town is that once you have some of those things that people want, you also have to be prepared, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Because we haven't actually really gotten there in most of West Virginia, but the challenge that most community development groups are facing is how do you manage gentrification yes right how do you keep your town culture and your sense of place and keep it affordable for the people for that live there
0: from there yeah yeah so yeah.
1: i think we will get there we mm-hmm. will be starting to face that more and more and fayetteville is absolutely facing that in terms of the housing availability and prices the infrastructure needs those kinds of things so mm-hmm. um but you know it's it does feel right to do this work and live in a small town
0: at the same time. Yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> it adds up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. it does. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for uh, having um, me. I learned, you know, some more about the hub and you got to share some of those strategies, you know, through your, just in your conversation, like the partnerships and, um, you know, meeting the needs and that getting community members involved. Those are all Great strategies for maximizing impact. So, well, thank you
1: I so appreciate much. it, and I appreciate all of the um, knowledge and learning that you've given me over the last ten years <laughs> about you. nonprofit leadership and management and uh, maximizing impact for sure. So, thank you. Thank you.